Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. We began last week talking about who Peter was, the things he did, the things he said. And, and I pointed out that we are much like Peter in many different ways, right? Uh, if you saw last week, most of us tend to put our foot in our mouths at the wrong time. We say the wrong things, do the wrong things, regardless of knowing the right thing that we should do. So we find ourselves much like Peter in those ways. And uh, the, the most important way that we are like Peter, and I told you this last week, but if we are believers in Christ this morning, we've been chosen by God to proclaim the gospel. And we're to proclaim the gospel no matter what people say, no matter what people may do, whether we're accepted by them, or whether we even experience great opposition to the message that we preach. We are to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ because we're only here on this earth for just a short time in relation to eternity. As a matter of fact, this is what the major theme of the book of 1 Peter is about, is strangers and exiles living in a foreign land, in a temporary land. This is our temporary home. And I told you last week that whether we are a believer or an unbeliever, we are all going to end our time on this earth at some point. And we will either enter into glorification with the Lord or we will enter into eternal damnation in hell. So we are here just for a brief period of time. And we'll experience many trials and troubles and we'll also have good things that happen to us on this earth. We'll have good moments in our lives. But these most important times in our lives is when we are proclaiming the gospel to a lost and dying world, to those that need to hear about Christ. And whether that brings forth trials or salvation, the good news is this morning that salvation is not up to us. Whether or not someone gets saved is not up to us. It's all left up to God. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning is we're going to be talking about God's providence and salvation. And I want you to know right out of the gate, listen, that this message is going to be tough. For those of you that are really going to listen, uh, you're going to find yourselves probably agreeing, disagreeing, not really sure what to think. You're going to find a range of emotions. But here's what I want you to do. I want to encourage you to do this morning. is to not put a, mind, a wall around your mind or around your hearts. Because we just want to let the Word of God speak this morning, because that's what we're all about. And at the end of the day, you're going to find some things that you agree with and some you may not agree with, but we're going to see that we can agree together somewhere on common ground. Amen? I believe that the Bible gives us really tough things so we can't overlook the tough things. I told you last week the reason we preach expositionally is in preaching through a book of the Bible is good is because we can't overlook these major doctrines that are in Scripture, right? It'd be easy to go Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and then skip right down to verse 3. But what's happening here is uh, in verses 1 and 2, we see what society is labeled as buzzwords. There are a couple of buzzwords in these first two verses this morning. And uh, you'll get to see those. You may have already heard them last week. But I, be, I feel like that if we're going to preach through the Bible, if we're going to teach the Word of God, we need to teach through the major doctrines and even the less major doctrines so we'll know uh, what Scripture says about things. Now listen, as we begin to talk, I want to make sure that you're not listening to what Google says or what YouTube says or what somebody else says about certain doctrines, if not all doctrines of Scripture, I want you to look at the Word of God this morning and you, in prayer and thoughtfulness and careful consideration, 
determine where you land specifically by the Word of God. So this morning we're going to be more teaching and then we'll do some application at the end. But today is going to be more of a teaching. Uh, we're going to have tons of scripture. Uh, I think they're going to be on the screen. I sent Joe the list this weekend and I said sorry for the scripture overload, but I think it's important as we unpack uh, doctrines in the Word to have scripture showing some of these things. Um, but if you have notes, I encourage you to take notes. I encourage you to read through your notes, read through the Word, read through the Scripture that I'll give you here in just a few minutes. And uh, at the end of the day, let's find a place where we can agree on common ground. Amen? Amen. So this morning, as you hear these things, I want you to take note of any questions you may have. And bring them back for Dr. T.J. Francis next Saturday night. <laughs> you can bring them back to him. He'll be more than happy uh, to answer a lot of your questions. He's going to do the same thing next Saturday night as we do every Sunday. He's going to open the Word. And he's going to show you the Word of God. And it's going to be a sweet time of fellowship together next Saturday night. So I'm really looking forward to that. That's at 6 p.m. by the way. Somebody asked me what time that was earlier. And I didn't mention that. But 6 p.m. next Saturday right here. So all that being said, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, some of you may have already heard two of those buzzwords that society has labeled as bad, right? Whenever you hear a buzzword in the church world, it's usually because somebody has demonized or wanting to cast out anybody that says these words. But we're going to see this morning and have already seen that two of these words are here in Scripture. So let's unpack these two words. First of all. If we know that Peter is the book, or the author of this book, I believe it's important for us to see who he's writing to. And right here in verse 1, he says, to those who are elect exiles. Now, I'm sure many of you thinking right now, you've already heard one of those buzzwords, and that buzzwords being elect. So Peter's writing to the elect exiles. Now, this whole letter that he's written it hinges on the believers who are scattered about, who are experiencing persecution for preaching the gospel and for their faith. They're, they're going through this life. So this letter hinges on their relationship with God in light of eternity, not their relationship with the things of this world. Okay, so as we move through this book, let's think about our relationship with the Holy God as it relates to us and eternity. And to pursue Christ, because we're going to see here later on down the road in a few weeks that we're called to be holy because He is holy. So let's pursue holiness together. And that's what this book hinges on is the believer's relationship with God in light of eternity. So Peter here is writing to the elect exiles. So as we read through this, that buzzword comes right out of the gate. And that buzzword, for those of you that may be wondering, like, I don't even know, the word elect. Now, the word elect in Christian circles has been one that has been uh, debated and back and forth like playing tennis, sometimes very combative. And I want to be clear this morning that this is not a doctrine that should be combative, especially to believers in the church. 
If you got a pen and paper, I want you to write that down. The doctrine of election should not be combative and should not divide the church. Whether you agree with it or disagree with it. We're going to see, as I mentioned later, where we can find common ground because this life is not about the elect and finding who they are. It's about preaching Christ and Christ crucified and being obedient to Him. So, who are the elect? Simply put, the elect are those whom God has predestined unto salvation. Uh, the Greek word for elect is eklektos. This simply means to be chosen by God to obtain salvation through Christ. The scriptures teach us that God has chosen a people for himself to be saved before the foundations even of the whole world. This is one of the most hated and controversial doctrines in all of Christendom because it is one of the most difficult doctrines for human minds to understand. And rightfully so. And as I've mentioned, this is known as the doctrine of election. However, I do believe that the doctrine of election is closely related to our view of God. So follow me here and bear with me for a few minutes. If you have a high view of God, then you believe that He alone reigns supreme, that He is sovereign and needs no help from man in any way. Then if we believe that He is sovereign and, and reigns supreme, then we'll even believe that He is sovereign and reigns supreme and in control of all things, including salvation. Which people with this high view of God tend to believe the doctrine of election. Now, if we have a low view of God, then that means that we're going to bring God down to our level. We're going to humble God ourselves and bring Him down to our level as if though He needed something from us, that we can choose to change the, uh, uh, the course of our life because God needs us to tell Him what to do. Then that even includes salvation, that we bring Him down to our level and say, God, you're sovereign. In all of these areas, except right here, and then you're not. I'm going to step into this, and I'm going to be sovereign Lord over my life, at least in this part. If people that have this view of God that bring Him down for one millisecond down to our level tend to be combative and hate the doctrine of election. Maybe you fall in a different place, and I would dare say most of you probably fall here. You have a high view of God. But you just don't understand this doctrine of election. It's hard to wrap our minds around. It's hard to really soak it in and try to think, what is this all about? And that is a great place to be. It's okay not to understand it. It's okay not to agree with it because you don't understand it. There are people in here right now that believe and disagree at the same time. And you've sat with them for years. And you don't know it. Why? Because we don't make it a big deal. But I believe it's good to teach through the doctrines of the Bible. So if you fall into this category of having a high view of God and not understanding this doctrine that it doesn't make sense, today is a great day to pay attention and listen to the word of the God. But here's what I do know, and listen to me carefully when I say this. Whatever you believe about this doctrine does not give you the right to be hateful to somebody else. What do I mean by that? If you believe in the doctrine of election, you do not have the right to be hateful to those that don't. If you don't believe the doctrine of election, you don't have the right to be hateful to those that do. Being hateful to somebody over a secondary issue in Scripture is sinful. You know, if we were battling over gospel issues, 
We still don't have the right to be hateful, but we have the right to expose for what it is. And we don't dis we don't disfellowship with one another over secondary and tertiary doctrines like we're talking through today. We fellowship and we stay together on grounds of the gospel of Jesus Christ because there are men and women, boys and girls, just like you and me that need to hear it. And they need to hear it from all believers regardless of what you believe. At the end of the day, it's okay to agree to disagree. And the word of God has the final authority in all matters. And I've already told you that this isn't a doctrine that should divide the church. I've told you there's many people in this room right now that both believe and don't believe in this doctrine. But as we continue this morning, since Peter is writing to the elect exiles, and if elect means chosen by God, I want to show you many passages of Scripture that talk about God choosing and not man choosing. Now, there are tons of Scripture in the Bible related to this. I'm just going to show you a handful, and by handful, I mean like 18 or so, and then more than that to come. I just want to be heavy on Scripture, okay? Uh, somebody said that after the first service, uh, that was awesome. It felt like it was a machine gun in the, with the scripture. I was like, hey, I wanted to come heavily armed with the word of God this morning because this is a doctrine that needs to be heavily armed with the word. Amen? Amen. So let me just show you a few things this morning as we continue our time together about God choosing. First of all, we see God choose Adam from the very beginning. Adam didn't choose to be born. Adam was chosen by God to preach his uh, decrees and statutes and to live in harmony with God. But we see that quickly fall apart in Genesis chapter 3 when sin entered the world. So God, his plan was not shaken. He continued with his providential plan by choosing Abraham, uh, people like Moses and people like Joshua. And the list goes on and on of people that God has chosen. And then we can get into some scripture this morning. You don't have to turn to each scripture, but I do want you to hear in the scripture what is being said. And if you want to write these down for further study when you go home this week, you can. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, says this, For you are a people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Psalm 105, verse 43 says, So He brought His people out with joy, His chosen ones with singing. Now that's talking about Exodus 15, and I wish I could expound on every one of these passages of Scripture, but one of the things that I want to mention is we look back in the book of Exodus and we see God's people come across dry land, and then we, they look back and they see the Egyptians following, and then immediately God puts the waters back down and they perish. And we see that as a, a time to worship. The Israelites worship the sovereign hand of God in that. And we look back at that and be like, praise God, he did this to save his people. But what makes us think God has changed to today? There are many people that are combative and hateful over people that might believe in the doctrine of election, all the while praising what happened in Exodus chapter 14 and 15. God was good then, but what about now? The Bible tells that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he never changes. That he is sovereign. Psalm 135 verse 4 says. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself. Israel as his own possession. You know the story of Jacob and Esau. We'll, we'll hit that quickly here in a few minutes. But humanly speaking. That story is jacked up right. And I'll quickly go through it when we get there. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. And then in Ephesians, just on down 1, chapter, verse 11, it says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purposes of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Now, the word predestined simply means to be to determine in advance by divine will. By divine will. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 say, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, Beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined he also called, and those whom he also justified, uh, I'm sorry, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, we'll get here in a few weeks, says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Then I see that Jesus appears to preach this doctrine in John 15, 16, when he tells the disciples, You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So let's think about Peter. We talked about him last week. Peter was trying to just fish. He was minding his own business. He wasn't seeking the Lord. He wasn't seeking the Savior. And we'll talk about that here in a few minutes. But the Savior sought him. The Savior sought the other disciples and immediately the Bible says Peter dropped his nets. The other disciples that were there that day, John and uh, all, of, all the disciples, left even their father to go follow this man named Jesus. 
And in John 13, 18, it says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And then here in John 6, 44, he says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. John 5, 21 says, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Those two words are huge in that passage. Give life to those whom he will. James, the half-brother of Jesus, seemingly points to this doctrine. In James chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? And if we think that God has called just only a handful of people to himself, we hear about a remnant in Scripture, but that remnant is enormous. There are people that can't even be numbered that God has saved and will continue to save. And if we think about this, back in, uh, in Genesis, when he told Abraham he'd be the father of many nations, he'd be able to look up at the stars and so numerous that he couldn't even count them. And if you know the story of Abraham, he died with one legitimate son and a promissory note from God that he'd be the father of many nations. Now, looking back from this scripture we're about to read, we see that God has done what he said he's going to do and save his people and Abraham with father of many nations. As the scripture in Revelation chapter 7, 9 and 10 reads, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Who does salvation belong to? Our God. Salvation doesn't belong to me. If it was up to me, I'd save every one of you right now. Those who weren't. But salvation belongs to God Almighty who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, which is His Son, Jesus Christ. And again, these are just a few passages of Scripture that deal with God choosing a people for Himself to obtain salvation through Christ. And in verse 2, Peter goes on to mention that those exiles are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. So when we think about the foreknowledge of God, this is another one of those buzzwords society has created, but foreknowledge of God. There are two schools of thought here that generally deal with the foreknowledge of God. The first one is the view of foreknowledge that teaches God and His omniscience looked down the corridors of the tunnels of time and saw who would believe the gospel and who would not. And from there... And only then God would choose for salvation all those who would believe and guarantee they'd reach heaven. The other view teaches that God not only divinely elects those who will have faith in Jesus, but also divinely elects to grant those individuals with the faith to believe in Christ. In other words, God's election is not based on a foreknowledge of an individual's faith and whether or not he would choose or not choose at some point in uh, the future. But it's based on the free, sovereign grace of an almighty God. And God elects people to salvation. And in time, these people will eventually come to faith. Those are the two primary views of foreknowledge and election. And the difference when we're talking about these two views comes down to this. Who has the ultimate choice in salvation? Is it man or is it God? 
I just read 18 passages and showed you a couple other ways before we began getting into Scripture about God choosing the people for Himself. So it appears in Scripture that God would has the choice in salvation, but from one view comes man has the, uh, the choice and God has the choice in the other. In the first view, man has control which diminishes the biblical view of God's sovereignty. And in the second view, God is in control which makes Him sovereign in all things. So both of these have been uh, have had their issues associated with them. First and foremost, when we look at the, the view of God looking down the tunnels of time to decide who would be chosen based on the man or woman's choice in the future, uh, a couple of things, three things come to mind as we look at these um, discrepancies. Number one, as mentioned, it makes man sovereign in salvation and not God. Jesus affirms his and his father's sovereignty when he told the disciples in John chapter 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Secondly, it gives man credit for obtaining salvation and receiving glory for something he has done instead of what God has done alone. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9 teaches that salvation is by grace through faith and this is not of anything that you have done, not by any works, so that you cannot boast about it. So there's, I just want to answer questions with Scripture, right? There's nothing that man, woman, boy, or girl can do according to Scripture to obtain salvation. There's no work they could do. There's nothing they could do. But once somebody says, I chose Jesus, once you throw that I in there, it immediately diminishes the sovereignty of God and has elevated yourself to a status of which none of us can hold. And we give ourselves glory for something that God did instead of what we did. The view also teaches that fallen man can seek after God. I ask y'all this all the time. What do dead things do? Nothing. Take up space, I heard somebody say. I, I heard this before. I heard it this morning, actually. As somebody mentioned after our first service. He said, I heard this one time. They said, hey, Frank, tie, Frank's dead. Hey, Frank, tie your shoe. Frank ain't tying his shoe, y'all. If Frank is dead, he can't tie his shoe. Somebody has to tie his shoe for him, right? That's the same way we are in our spiritual condition before salvation. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. If you don't uh, take my word for it, look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. We are lifeless. Our spiritual life is nothing. There's no faint heartbeat. I know that there's some uh, uh, EMTs here and have been here before. And, and, and if you've ever seen them on shows or whatever, they pull up to a place. And if they have just the faintest heartbeat, they go to resuscitate, right? Doing all they can. But listen, when we're spiritually dead, we have nothing. We are flatlined spiritually. There is not a step we can take toward Christ. There is not a vocal thing we can say to accept Christ because we are dead. And then if you read on in, second, in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, it goes on to say, but God being rich in mercy and love. It's the Lord that grants salvation to those whom He will according to Scripture. We can't even seek after God. You may be saying, well, I'm well alive. But the Bible teaches even in our living, we cannot and will not seek after God. Romans 3.11 simply says this. No one understands. No one seeks for God. I don't know about y'all, but when I was living my life, I was just doing what I wanted. 
I was living for myself. And all of a sudden, I was being convicted. And the Holy Spirit was working in my life. I was like, what is this? Like, I was arrested. My soul was just, like, stopping its tracks. Like, what is happening to me? And then the Lord graciously and radically saved me. Romans 5, 6 and 8 says, For while we were still weak at the right time, for Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if you read your Bible and know Scripture, the ungodly, those are enemies to God. Hostile to God. I'm a good person. If you're not spiritually changed by the grace of God, you are hostile to God and an enemy to Him. Yet, even though you are a hostile enemy, He sent His Son Jesus to die for you. And it wasn't because I could muster up enough in my faint pulse to say, save me. No, it's more like we were laying lifeless at the bottom of the sea and the Lord dove and He got us. And brought us up to new life. Apart from God working in our lives. We would never turn our attention to God. We would never seek after him on our own. We are sinful people in need of God's saving grace and faith. Granted by him alone. And I know one of the arguments may say. Well I grew up in church. I grew up in a Christian home. And it's okay. And glad that happens. But that Christian environment doesn't save you. It's only the powerful Word of God that saves and transforms by the Holy Spirit. So in, in other words, what I'm saying is we could go to church and sing and read our Bibles and do these things that are fundamental, but those things don't save us. That would be a works-based salvation that is strictly goes against what God has said in His Word. It's only by the Lord working in our lives that I believe from His Word we can receive salvation. In the other view of foreknowledge, there's also been many things and discrepancies in there about God's foreknowledge and election. Number one, it said that the doctrine of election robs man of his free will. Secondly, it's also said that there would be no need to evangelize or witness to people since God has already chosen those whom he will save. And if election is true, it doesn't matter how we live. We are just robots or God's puppets. So let me speak to those three things real quick. Because there are people that believe in the doctrine of election that believe these very things, most of them, that they don't have to evangelize. Right? And that's wrong. But let me get there in just a minute. First of all, I want to talk about our free will. So if you look at the Bible, I personally, and this is where, this is an area, look, this is another place where we might agree to disagree here. But I personally believe that our wills have never actually been free to begin with. Even before we are saved. Romans 5 teaches us that we are all born in sin. We have a sin nature, and before salvation, our wills are a slave to sin and Satan. Let's look at Romans 6, 15 through 23. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Let me stop here. Some of you may be like, I disagree with this wholeheartedly. And that's okay. 
you will never hear me say you have to agree with it. But it's hard because we have natural, human, fleshly limitations to try to understand the things of God. We never will be until we're glorified with Him on that day. So it's okay to wrestle and struggle with things because we have a fallen, we live in a fallen world with fallen minds and fallen hearts that we just can't wrap ourselves around the, the total and the totality of who God is and who God is in His Word. And Paul recognizes it. And even Peter later in Scripture says that Paul's hard to understand even for me. Right? So if Paul's hard to understand, then it's going to be hard for us to understand doctrines found in the Bible. Amen? Or oh me. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we are by nature children of wrath. We are by nature following the prince of the power of the air. We are by our very nature aligning ourselves up with Satan and the enemy. And we are slaves to sin. So our wills are enslaved to what we give it to. If it's sin, we line ourselves up with Satan. And if it's salvation that we receive, then our wills are now lined up with the things of God. So I would argue that our wills are never truly free. We're either a slave to sin and death or a slave to life and righteousness in Christ. Now, does that negate the fact that we have daily choices and decisions that we make? Absolutely not. We, we're even told by Jesus that every single day we have the choice whether to take up our cross by denying ourselves and following him or we're going to deny our cross for the sake of ourselves, right? So everything that we do, every decision that we make on, on this side of eternity has consequences. And rightfully so. So our wills may be enslaved to one or the other, but we do have choices that we make. And the choices that we make are going to show where we align and who we align with. And if we're believers and we make choices that align with Satan, there are consequences. If we're unbelievers, we're already aligned with Satan. We're already aligned with the enemy. And it's in salvation where we cross from death to life and then become slaves to righteousness. So free will would actually say this. I'm in charge of my own life. Every aspect of my being, I'm in control. Doesn't that sound like we're exalting ourselves as sovereign over the mighty sovereign God of the Bible? So again, I would argue our wills are not necessarily ever free and the choices we make show where our alignments are. Secondly, when it comes to this issue of those that believe in this doctrine of election, you can't use it, use it as an excuse not to witness or evangelize or preach the gospel. You just can't. Because there's this thing here and it's called the Bible that teaches us otherwise. We've got the Great Commission, obviously, when Jesus tells us to go into the world and make disciples. We also have Romans 10, 9 and 15 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him 
will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We have no problem with that at all, do we? But let's keep reading. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't care whether you believe this doctrine or you don't. You don't have the excuse not to evangelize and witness. We should not be concerning ourselves with who God has chosen and who He is not. What we should be concerning ourselves with is being obedient to the scriptures that tell us to do so. That tells us to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. That tell us to preach the gospel. To be prepared in season, out of season. So we can reprove and rebuke and all of those things. And that comes from the mighty word of God. Not from some doctrine that we align ourselves with and say because God has done it, I don't have to do anything. That's hogwash. And we've got to go to work for the sake of the gospel. So those that God has chosen can hear the word of the Lord and be saved. Sorry, I got a little loud there. But this is the word of the Lord, and this excites me more than anything in this life. If God, who saves, and people are only saved when they hear the gospel. Finally, those that God chooses, another thing that is said that uh, those that God chooses are just robots. They're forced to do things. They're forced to do certain things and to do. Do we remember Peter from last week? Jesus, God in the flesh, knew exactly the things that Peter would do, what he would say, and a lot of these things would dishonor God. And instead of pulling back the reins, Jesus didn't say, whoa, Peter, right? He let those decisions that Peter made play out. But you know what ultimately happened in Peter's life? God's will for Peter played out as well. Whatever God wanted for Peter's life happened regardless of the choices Peter made. I would say the same for us as believers. Whatever choices we make, God's plan and will for our lives are going to work out the way He has already planned them. And it's not going to be for our glory. It's going to be for His. So God isn't just manipulating believers to do what he wants them to do. The spirit at work within a believer doesn't even manipulate, but changes us from the inside out and gives us the desire to study the word, to become more like Christ, to learn in our mistakes, to learn in our afflictions, to learn in whatever life throws at us, to learn and become more like Christ. All for the glory of God. This morning you can see that this is a difficult doctrine to swallow and digest, and rightfully so. Again, I want to confirm to you it's okay to feel this way about these doctrines. But I want to show you another passage of Scripture today for our study together and for you to go home and really study through to give careful prayer and consideration to when you wrestle with this doctrine. So if you would, turn with me now to Romans chapter 9. If you have a physical copy of the Word. I'd love for you to turn it there. I know it's going to be on the screens, or if you've got your own Bible, I want you to see it up close and personal today. 
I would venture into saying that this is probably one of the most neglected chapters in all of the Bible to be preached on, to be studied, because this is uh, difficult to read at times with our human mind, but this is the Word of God. Before we get into Romans chapter 9, I'm not going to read through it, but Paul is worshiping the Lord, saying, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall famine, the sword, nakedness, any of these, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ for those that are believers. If you're not a believer in here this morning, remember I said that you're an enemy with God. You're hostile to Him. But if you're a believer, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And Paul acknowledges that. And then he moves into Romans chapter 9. Let's read and hear the word of the Lord together. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever and amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Amen. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And if you know about Abraham, Abraham was given this, we talked about it earlier, this promise, but then Abraham also had another son named Ishmael, right? But we don't hear much about Ishmael because he has not been chosen to carry out the promises of God. So here, Ishmael uh, is no longer kind of in the picture. And we have Isaac, the only what we call legitimate son of Abraham to carry out God's promises. And we think, why did not God choose Ishmael to carry this out? There's a whole lot of things going on there we can talk about later. But God specifically chose Isaac to continue to uh, bring forth this promise that God promised to Abraham. And then Paul goes on, starting in verse 11. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and listen to this carefully, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, these brothers, two brothers in the womb, they had not been born yet, had done nothing either good or bad. It says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. And as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now this is before these two children were ever born and stepped foot on this earth. God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now if you look back at the story, in our flesh, humanly speaking, Esau, that was his birthright. When we look at the story, Esau should have been one that carried the line. Yet it was God that said, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And that's hard to really fathom, isn't it? That's hard. Why would God do that? Why would he say that? And we can only let the scripture speak for itself. So let's keep reading what the word says. 
What shall we say there then? Is there injustice on God's part? To, to our fleshly minds, it would sound like that's injustice, wouldn't it? But the Bible says, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he called not from the Jews only but also from the Gentiles as indeed he says in Hosea those who were not my people I will call my people and her who is not beloved I will call beloved and in the very place where it was said to them you are not my people there they will be called sons of the living God and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So how do we reconcile this? Doesn't that sound like there's injustice there? And Paul saying, by no means, who are we to say to the Creator of all things, including us, who are we to say, what have you done? How could you do this? Why did you do this? How could you make some, something for dishonorable use, another for honorable use, and you be okay? Like, how is that okay? But we're told that we don't even have the right to question God. Because God is God and we are not. Think about how big we think we are. But then let's think about the God of the universe that created us. I mentioned it last week. You moms have probably said, I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it. Now you might can take out. But it, I would argue that it was God that brought in. It was God that brought you into this world. By his grace. And thank God we have young kids running around here. Another story, another topic, I better go. So what do we do with this? How do we reconcile this that God seems almost unfair? First of all, I tell you, you don't want God to be fair because we all deserve death and hell. Second of all, I'd let the Bible speak for itself again in Psalm 115, verse 3, that says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Well, we can't argue with the Bible. We can't argue with God. You can... You can try to argue with me, but I'm just going to let you argue with the Lord, and I'm going to hand the Scriptures all to you, right? And I don't say that to be like some conceited, high and mighty, you can't argue with me. I'm just going to come from the Bible. This is what the Word says. And we've heard a lot of it this morning. But I acknowledge and understand that this is a difficult doctrine. Some of you still may disagree with it, and that's okay. But for those with opposing views in the room, I want to read you... An interaction between two men. One you've probably heard of. His name is John Wesley. He did not believe in the doctrine of election. 
The other man, Charles Simeon, you may have heard of him. He did believe in the doctrine of election. But I want to read you an exchange between these two men. Sir, Simeon said to Wesley, I understand that you don't believe in the doctrine of election, and I have been known to believe in the doctrine of election, and therefore, I suppose we are to draw daggers. But before I consent to begin the combat, with your permission, I will ask you a few questions. Sir, do you feel yourself a depraved creature, so depraved that you would never have thought of turning unto God, if God had not first put it in your heart to do so? Yes, answered Wesley, I do indeed. And do you utterly despair of recommending yourself to God by anything that you can do and look for salvation solely through the blood and righteousness of Christ? Yes, solely through Christ, Wesley said. But sir, supposing you were at first saved by Christ, are you not somehow or other to save yourself afterwards by your own works? No, I must be saved by Christ from first to last. Allowing then that you were first turned by the grace of God, are you not in some way or other to keep yourself by your own power? No. Well then, are you able to be upheld every hour and every moment by God as much as an infant is in its mother's arms? Yes, altogether. And is all your hope in the grace and mercy of God to preserve you until his heavenly kingdom? Yes, I have no hope but in him. Then, sir, with your leave, I will put my dagger down but this is my election, my justification, my faith, my final perseverance. It is in substance all that I hold. And as I hold it, therefore, if you please, instead of searching out terms and phrases to be a ground of contention between us, we will cordially unite in those things wherein we agree. Let me put that in our language. Let me just use sides of the room. Let's just say all, everybody over here believes in the doctrine of election. Everybody over here doesn't. Oh, but here's the gospel. If we were to say sit where you agree, everybody should sit right here. For salvation is by grace through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is only by God's grace are any of us saved. And that is the gospel message. Repent and believe. So if I were to say sit where we agree, there's common ground right in the middle, amen? And none of us will be fighting on that common ground, would we? There's our common ground where we can unite over this doctrine. And if this side is sinful to this side, and this side is hateful and sinful to this side, we've got to have some talks because that's not what God wants us to do. It's only the gospel that we must agree 100% on. Nothing that we can do, only by God's grace and every one of us would be lying from here to bend in agreement with that. And we still fellowship, worshiping the same God, loving on each other the same way that He teaches us in His Word. In a few words this morning as we're closing, who are the elect? Church, whether you believe it or don't believe it, the elect are true believers in Christ. So it was whether or not you believe that God chose you before the foundations of the world or if you chose Him for salvation, if you are a truly converted believer in Christ, you are one of the elect. In verse 2, Peter also acknowledges the saving work of the Trinity and salvation. As a believer in Christ, we must believe in the triune God. Not only acknowledge it, but believe it. 
It is God the Father who chooses the Holy Spirit that brings forth change in a person and regeneration. It is the Spirit that sanctifies a person, making them holy, making them more like Christ. And it's only in Christ alone are we saved by the sprinkling or the shedding of His blood that cleanses us from all sin. As believers, we see the Trinity at work in salvation. Three persons, one God. And God is at work in the life of every believer. And this is where we move from teaching to practical and how do we apply this message to our lives. Peter's writing to these true believers and he's saying that life, and we're going to see this as we go through, that life is tough. Life is hard. Life is difficult. You got wins, you got losses, you make the right choices, you make wrong choices, you do the wrong things, you do the right things, a whole spectrum of things in this life, but overall, Life is tough because we live in a fallen world and we're trying to navigate it as believers in Christ. And Peter's going to tell them, hang on, cling to Christ. It's only temporal. It's only for a short time that you're here. Cling to Christ. Preach the gospel. Put your hope in Christ and in eternity where you will live forever and while you're living that way, do what you can to bring others along with you. Snatch them out of the fire of hell by preaching and proclaiming the gospel. Trust in the sovereign hand of God. Don't give up. Don't quit. If He has saved you, He loves you and has a plan for your life. Trust that plan this morning. If you aren't a believer in here, the Bible simply says, repent of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe what? That he came from his throne in glory. He humbled himself. He died and shed his blood on a cross for your sins. The Bible says he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Believe that the shedding of his blood was for you and your sin. Believe that he was buried and in three days he was lifted and raised and seated now at the right hand of God. Believe that he's alive and well and he is coming back for his people. And the Bible says if you believe that in your heart, confess it with your mouth, you will be saved. Let's stand together and pray. Father, thank you for this time together, this extended time together this morning, but thank you for your word and I thank you for men and women that sat in here under difficult doctrines and listened intently. And Father, I'm thankful that we have common ground where we can agree on. I'm thankful that you have hard doctrines in the Word for us to wrestle through, to sharpen us. But I'm also thankful that these doctrines don't divide us. Let this strengthen us, what we've heard today. Let us take this and just study it and get in your Word this week as we see and understand and try to understand what you have for us, your people. And if there's anyone in here this morning that has not been saved by your grace through faith, I pray right now by, by your grace that you would save someone. Father, I pray that as they've heard the gospel, they will repent and believe that you are the Christ, Son of the living God. And we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen.